Welcome to the Digital Families Podcast. I'm Leonie Smith, sometimes known as the Cyber Safety Lady. I'm a cyber safety educator and this podcast is all about learning how to use the digital technology in our homes with more safety and balance. My guest today on Digital Families is Dr. Christy Goodwin, who is a digital wellbeing and productivity speaker, author and researcher. Christy was formerly a lecturer and honorary associate at Macquarie University at the Institute of Early Childhood and has lectured at Notre Dame University. She worked as a primary school and early childhood teacher for 14 years in a range of educational settings in Australia and Asia. In 2004, Christy was awarded a New South Wales Quality Teaching Award and in 2007 was awarded an Australian Postgraduate Scholarship for her doctoral studies at Macquarie University, where she completed a PhD on the impact of digital technologies on children's learning. So you know we're in the hands of an extremely qualified person. Christy has also written a book, Raising Your Child in a Digital World. Christy, welcome to the Digital Families Podcast. Great to be here, Leonie. And I'll also add I'm a mum in the digital trenches. I have three... um, I call them teenagers, three boys, um, ranging from 10 years to 20 months. I had to think about that one for a minute. So I understand firsthand the digital numbers facing parents as well. Yes, you do, as do I. My uh, offspring are a great deal older than yours, um, but I started as a digital parent in 1995. So I'm at the other end of the scale of this and it's, it's interesting to see <laughs> over the 20 years how things have changed. So I won't scare you with what's coming up, Christy. But <laughs> um, one of the most asked questions about technology during these COVID-19 times is about screen time and I know um, you are really well versed in that subject. Parents are worried that they're allowing their children too much time on screen so I hear that a lot in, in questions that parents send me. They're also worried about the relaxing of the boundaries around screen time and content such as maybe allowing a younger child to participate in apps like TikTok which is incredibly popular at the moment or games like Fortnite. Um, But it does seem that both adults and children might be struggling to balance screen time right now for some very good reasons. What advice, Christy, do you have to parents who are struggling to maintain this balance? So I think we need to acknowledge that we are in extenuating circumstances. We're in the middle um, or hopefully towards the end of a global health pandemic. So if you have adjusted your screen time rules and parameters, rest assured you're certainly not the only parent. I think we need to accept that lowering the bar during these extenuating times is okay um, and that there is time to course correct. Having said that, um, I think what I'm talking about there is more in regards to obsessing over how much time our kids and perhaps we as adults are spending online. Um, I think we have realised during this whole pandemic that the online world is a portal for us. It's a portal for us to connect. It's a portal for us to access work or learning materials. um, And it's a portal for our leisure. So I really strongly encourage um, parents to stop 
fretting about how much time their children are spending online. And instead, at this particular point in time, I think we need to be looking at controlling the controllables. What is within our locus of control that we can um, exert some influence over when it comes to our kids and screen time? And I think that we need to have far more nuanced conversations around screen time rather than just narrowly obsessing over how much time. And I think at this point in time, we really should be focusing on what and really when our kids are using technology. I think they're the two biggest questions rather than fixating on the how much piece. Um, mm both at this particular point in time and moving forwards. Um, you know, using time as the only metric um, doesn't give us a very broad um, exploration of screen time. I think we really need to be having more nuanced conversations and really at this point focusing in on the what and the when they're using screens. Yeah, which goes to my next question that I had lined up perfectly. Um, with younger children, how do you advise parents to approach digital technology such as mobile devices, iPads, tablets, whatever they are, and smart TVs? We are now being told by researchers not to focus on the time, but to focus more on the content. But I, even though that's the message that we're giving parents, um, what if you feel like your child is never offline and, and I know a lot, a lot of parents feel that way don't we have to do some clock watching so a parent will often say to me well that's all well and good but I actually want to know what how much time my child should spend on a screen every day does that include tv as well give me a number because they are so overwhelmed with everything going on in their lives this nuanced approach to them seems unspecific and they're worried, I think, that, you know, when they add up all that screen time, that um, it's not healthy for kids. Yes. So when it comes to the amount of time, I'm certainly not suggesting that we give our kids, you know, untethered access to technology because we know they would find it really challenging to self-regulate. But it's also very difficult to prescribe an exact amount of screen time that is healthy or safe or appropriate for a child simply based on their chronological age. I mean, we do have government guidelines or government recommendations and they can be a baseline for parents. But I think if we really fixate on the how much piece, um, we can miss really critical considerations when it comes to our kids online. So when it comes to the how much, the philosophy and the formula that I encourage parents to look at is to consider what their screen time is displacing. So it's sometimes referred to as the opportunity cost. So if your child's basic physical and psychological needs are being met, so my um, research looks at neuroscience and developmental science, and we have a very clear, well-substantiated body of evidence that young people, I in fact believe it applies to us as adults, have seven basic psychological and or physical needs. And we need to make sure, so it's things like sleep, play, physical movement, good quality nutrition, um, relationships, uh, language. We need to make sure all of those fundamental needs, biological needs that we have, are met. And then we can fill up the available time outside of those needs being met with screen time. And we don't have to have this moral panic. We don't have to be fretting about screen time damaging or derailing our children's development. So I encourage parents, particularly of young children, um, and certainly equally applicable to parents of older children, but it's much easier to do this while they're young, and that is to be the pilot of the digital plane. 
And as the pilot of the digital plane, you have to get, I think, three Bs right. The first one is boundaries. You've got to come up with boundaries with your children, um, not for your children necessarily, but boundaries in collaboration with them around certainly how much, but also what, when, where, how and with whom they're using screens. The second B that refers to at the screen time question is their basic needs, making sure that their basic needs are prioritised and not superseded by their tech time. And the third need, and I know this one sounds counterintuitive in the digital age, but that is to foster boredom, making sure that we carve mm. time out for our kids to be digitally, for all of us, in fact, uh, adults included, to be digitally disconnected. So I think um, yeah, to encourage parents to say, you know, they certainly do need, you know, these technologies that we all use, our toddlers, right back to our teens and adults, they have been intentionally designed. There are some very, very persuasive um, design techniques that make these technologies really psychologically appealing and captivating. Um, mm. And so it is really difficult for our kids to self-regulate. So they really do need us as parents in the pilot of the digital plane. And if we start this while our children are young, we still can exert some um, influence or locus of control over their decisions. It is much easier than trying to enforce tech rules with the 16 year old um which mm. i will admit probably agree leonie is near impossible um to do yeah. it retrospectively that's what well that's one of the things that i say to parents if that the managing your digital technology might be the first really big um issue that you as a parent have to navigate um and when you get to a point when they are um teenagers if you've set up some really good boundaries and systems around digital technologies, you can use similar kinds of approaches to other things that they're going to come across as teenagers because they will already know, okay, you don't mess with mum or dad. Once we've got boundaries set up that are fair, I know that within reason I have these expectations on what will happen if I go outside these boundaries. So it, it's, a, it's a test case, isn't it? It absolutely is. And I often say to parents, future you will thank you. If you do the groundwork, if you do the hard yards when they are young, and it doesn't mean they're going to like or endorse the boundaries that you do establish, mm. but it will pay dividends further on down the track. The other yeah. thing that I remind parents of that I think we have sometimes perhaps forgotten um, is that it is okay for our kids not to like or for our kids not to approve of the boundaries that we establish with them. Mm. Um, mm. I think we often try and appease our children um, for a whole host of reasons. Um, and I think it's that's okay. A very you know, modern, right. That's a very modern dilemma, Christy. You know, like I... I can remember back to my own parents having absolutely no interest in whether I liked them or not. You know, <laughs> you know, they just had no interest whether I liked them or not. They didn't care. It, for them, it was a completely different era. And I think um, for parents in our era, era, we're much more concerned about that. Perhaps we look back on how we were parented and think, no, I don't want that sort of relationship with my child. What's going on there? Why are we so concerned that our kids might get upset? and we're like oh no 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 we, they can't be upset and they and, and you know they're fearful of sometimes setting boundaries because of how their children are going to react and in fact I've had several parents say to me just recently you know what I thought things were going to be a lot more challenging when I set boundaries and in fact they're actually not well kids really respond favorably from my experience as both a parent and a teacher 
kids really, you know, our brains like predictability. So when the boundaries are up, we've given our kids very clear lines of demarcation around what's acceptable, what's not. Um, and again, it doesn't mean they like those parameters. Their brain certainly does. Um, we also know, I think, why we're seeing this, um, I think there's a host of reasons, but the chief one that I hear um, is that often many parents in today's society are very time poor. And so okay. given that they're time poor, they don't want to spend the valuable time that they've got with their kids, um, you know, in arguments or having the dreaded techno tantrum or screen time ending in scream time, which it often does. The <laughs> other thing that I'm hearing from a lot of parents, and this is why I think social media is often prematurely introduced to them, why kids are given smartphones well before they're, you know, cognitively ready and socially ready to deal with them, is because parents fear that the denial of access to whatever their tech request is, so, you know, you can't have a smartphone or you can't have access to that game or I'm not letting you play on that app, means that they're going to be socially ostracised. And kids use that to their yeah. advantage. You know, they're the ones coming home and saying, you know, I'm the only girl in all of you three in, you know, not just my school but in probably all of Australia or even the whole world who doesn't have TikTok or whatever their request mm. is and parents mm. feel... Um, again, we go back to how we are wired as humans. We are hardwired for relational connection. We are one of our fundamental psychological drivers is the need for relational connection. We want to be part of a tribe. We want to be part of a group. That's why we often don't want to put our children, um, who we love dearly, in a position where they're going to be ostracised or the only one that doesn't have access to mm. the said app or digital device. So I think mm. there's a, a few factors at play but I think it's definitely the time poor piece and that fear of social ostracization that is encouraging parents to introduce it and the other thing I think is because often parents looking around you know we are the first generation of parents who are raising kids in this completely um, immersed digital world and so we've got no frame of reference so when we look around at our other parents in our peer group and they're all giving their kids you know access to social media mm. or to a gaming console mm. or whatever the digital dilemma is we imitate you know we have mirror neurons in our brain meaning that we imitate the behaviors that we observe so that can sometimes mm. explain why we're um, the copying yeah, as well. Yeah, that's one of the things that I say is that, you know, you and you said this in a, for those listening, Christy did a really amazing video that I shared on my Facebook page um, just a day or so ago about crowdsourcing opinions, which I absolutely agree with. So if you if you haven't seen it, go either go to my page or Christy's page and have a look at that video because it's something I've been saying for years about not judging what's right for you and your family by what your peers as parents are doing because it's like anything in this world. At the moment, we're looking at social media and we are seeing how many kids in primary school are on essentially an adult platform experiencing adult and an adult environment. And we have no idea really because the research is still very, in very early days how that's affecting them. And at some point we may turn around and say, what on earth were we thinking when we see the results of children becoming extremely um, sophisticated and influenced by an adult world well before they're cognitively ready to handle it. 
Absolutely. And I think, you know, when we give our kids access to social media or to a smartphone, we are giving them so much more than just an app or a smartphone. Um, and, you know, many of these social media platforms where kids are congregating, often before the legal age or most of them being 13, um, children often, as you said, Leonie, don't have the psychological resources that they need to um, access access the platforms and use them respectfully and responsibly. Um, we know, for example, that prefrontal cortex, so the part of the brain that helps with self-regulation, it's not fully developed. So your young person does not have the brain architecture to manage their impulses. So they are literally, pardon the pun, hardwired to take silly risks online, to post things that they will later regret, um, mm. to write a nasty and um, that is, you know, that's just our biological maturation. That part of the brain, and parents, I'm going to bear some bad news now, that part of the brain doesn't fully develop until children, in fact, they're, until they're in their mid to late 20s. So I know. We are giving <laughs> experience. Got many years ahead. But we cannot hand out these powerful devices to our kids and expect them to be able to, first of all, self-regulate the amount of time they're spending on them, to use them respectfully and responsibly. And so I yeah. Well, we're struggling as well. Adults struggle with that as well. I still see my 20-year-old is still struggling. Every now and then I find his phone in the corridor and it's the mm. only way that he can prevent himself from looking at he's self-moderating but he's he admits that it's a struggle for him and he's 20 so don't think parents and my kids are still living at home <laughs> that once they're 18 it's all over and it's hands off no, no. you as you're always a parent you're a parent Absolutely. always and, I, and you need I think if we examine our behaviors we can start to see you know as adults fully developed brain architecture how tethered to technology we are and how hard we find it to digitally connect. So we could only imagine how challenging that would be for a developing brain and particularly for our pre-teens and our adolescents who are naturally wired to move away from the family unit and to start to congregate more with their peer group. That's the biological mm. evolutionary process. And so that need to be digitally connected to their peer group via platforms makes that problem amplified. The other yeah. thing I wanted to say is that that, that problem with our kids making careless errors, um, as I said, is a, you know, a biological tendency, that just that, that part of the brain isn't fully online, it's not fully developed. Um, and so our kids, I often refer to it, they're curating their digital DNA. Often people talk about their footprint, that their digital footprint, and our kids are doing this and often without a lot of parental guidance, telling them how to do it respectfully and responsibly. And the other big thing I see, um, and this I think you would agree, Leonie, we see so much cyberbullying taking place at night, often because kids have unsupervised access, but also mm. because of the way the brain works. Mm. night that part of the brain that helps us make good decisions and helps us with that self-regulation and impulse control it is completely and it turns off and a part of the brain that's called the amygdala and so it's the emotional hub of the brain it fires up at night and this is just a recipe for disaster because their logical brain is off and their emotional brain is yeah. on. so they're more likely to retaliate for the nasty message or to respond to the person who you know is grooming them online yeah i've heard um, you say so i've heard you talk about that before christy which is which leads me to the 
a question that a lot of parents have is about, you know, when they have a sleepover, for instance, that whole thing of giving the phone in for that particular reason, that when there's a bunch of kids all together, if there's four kids sleeping over or whatever, that it's so highly dangerous for them to have their devices with them overnight because of what you've just said. Absolutely. So that's where I'm saying at the early part of our conversation, as the pilot of the digital plane, you need to come up with those boundaries. And one of the controllable factors do exert some control over, even in this lockdown period, where our kids might be spending more time on the device, is when. What times of the day um, do you limit, do you moderate, or do you actually deny them having access? And I think, as you said, Plates can often be a recipe for disaster, um, but particularly sleepovers when we know what happens in the brain um, at night and when we know what happens when young people, um, you know, gather in social settings um, in yeah. a physical environment. And you can have that rule and you can have that rule in your house the same as you do for any other rule. I know some parents are very... Um, um, nervous about suggesting that all the kids, okay, at our house, we hand our phones in and we charge them at a certain time. But just think about it in a, in a larger spectrum of all sorts of rules you might have in the house. In our house, we don't hit each other. <laughs> in our house, we don't throw food or whatever it might be. That's part of what's what happens in your house. And I think other children um, may respect the fact that you have those boundaries. Um, and if they don't, then you have to treat it the same way as if they came into your house and disrespected another kind of boundary, do you think? I agree completely. And I think with boundaries, one of the things that we, again, often overlook because we're trying to gain that acceptance with our kids and really make the most of the limited time that we might have with them is yeah. that we have forgotten that I think it's a rite of passage as a parent that our kids are at some point going to say, I hate you, you suck, and you're mm. the worst parent in the world. And I think we have to, as parents, be okay with that. And I have found when my sons have asked, you know, my son who's 10 is convinced he's the only boy in all of Australia who doesn't have a gaming console um, for a whole myriad of, of reasons, none of which have to actually do with him, probably more to do with his younger sibling. Um, but we have always, and what I've found works really well, particularly with um, adolescents, is to give our children reasons for our decisions. So it's not just a hard no, but this is a no. And we don't want to scaremonger. This is not about terrifying them, or, you know, or, or um, mm. trying to make technology something that is perceived as something that's taboo or toxic or the forbidden fruit, but it's about giving them reasons for your decision um, so that they, doesn't mean they like it, um, but they might start mm. to accept the justification for the approach you've taken. And I think we've also got to acknowledge this is an ongoing conversation. You know, the online world is moving at such rapid rates that this is not a set and forget conversation. This is an evolving yeah. conversation we need to be having with our kids, unfortunately. Yeah. So, um, Christy, you're very well versed in also um, young, very young children and toddlers. When parents are looking for suitable content for kids that are, say, maybe four or five years of age, where should they go to find that content? Have you found some some really good apps or games or anything like that, like for your own children that you would recommend to um, parents with younger children? I have. So, um, look, there are some 
couple of design features. So with, again, we don't want to be in a rush to dunk our kids in the digital stream. There is absolutely no research evidence that tells us that giving a toddler um, access to a touch screen is going to get them ready for Harvard or to, you know, teach them school readiness <laughs> skills. Um, there is a lot of marketing hype around many apps that are marketed as being educational for toddlers. And again, yeah. I go back, what does neuroscience tells us? tell us, neuroscience tells us that the human brain is incapable of making meaning from a 2D screen. So they cannot look at a TV or a, tub a tablet or a touchscreen device and extrapolate what they see on that screen to the real world until they're somewhere between 18 and 36 months. So somewhere between one and a half th and three years, they can start to make meaning from a screen. Now, that doesn't mean they don't okay. like to look at the screen. You only need to look at a newborn baby sometimes and they'll, you know, contort their head to try and turn and look at the TV or look at the smartphone. But they, their brain actually can't make meaning. We call it the video deficit or the video transfer effect. Um, but what we do know, is, and I'm not saying don't ever let your toddler use a smartphone or use technology, that's certainly not the case. And I don't think that's helpful advice. What we want to do is where possible, and as a mum, I know we can't always sit down with our kids, but when we can, try and engage in the media with them. Even if it's just mm. the TV on in the background and you're cooking dinner, um, they call it joint media engagement or co-viewing. So trying to use the technology with them because what we're doing in that instance is bridging the gap between what they're seeing on the 2D screen and the real world. So you might say, you know, look at that, that elephant. Where have we seen a picture in the elephant? And maybe when you're reading a picture book later that night, you can help make that connection. The yeah. other thing we really want to look at um, with toddlers in particular, um, is to look for apps or television shows or videos or we don't watch videos anymore, do we, <laughs> DVDs um, or streaming services. We still call them videos. We do, don't we? I do. I know I some of the terminology. Like, what's a video? I know some of the terminology has not changed even despite the oh, fact that we don't play video games anymore. It's like what, you know. So true. <laughs> I'll tell you a quick little story. My son, when he was four, um, we moved house and I had a box of old CDs that I used to listen to. And he said, Mum, Mum, what are you doing with these? And I said, Oh, they're, they're music. He said, They're what? No, they're not. They're the mobiles that scare the birds away at preschool. <laughs> and he was convinced. <laughs> That's how they'd been repurposed in his preschool. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. <laughs> um, so we used to laugh about floppy disks and now it's CDs. <laughs> um, so we need to look for apps where they're, um, they're language rich or television shows where there's language rich. The other thing that we know that the developing brain really needs is repetition. So there is a reason that Dora the Explorer is very repetitive and uses the same sorts of format. Kids also, okay. particularly toddler, toddlers, need a very predictable linear format. Um, so that's why YouTube is often not a suitable alternative for young children in particular because that's anything but linear and predictable. Um, so I strongly, a couple of favourites for me, um, Tokoboka make really incredible language-rich play-based mm -hmm. apps for young children, um, mm -hmm. Duck Duck Moose. Um, and another one, Nosy Crow, um, have brought to life all of the traditional fairy tales in the most engaging and dynamic interactive book experience. Um, Joan Gantz Cooney Centre. Are great, but I've hardly, because oh, yeah. I'm in a different demographic to you, um, yeah. I, I did come across an amazing uh, interactive book that I recommend in my um, 
in my manual and I'm trying to think of the name of it now. But has that, as a, as a thing for young people, has that really taken off the interactive books? They have in some regards, but what's been really interesting is that re the research on interactive books tells us that it often, um, especially depending on how they're used, but often what happens is that the, the parent or the caregiver, whoever's reading with the child, becomes more of the technical controller. So they're saying, don't press that button, hang on, no, no go uh, back to that page, no, don't swiping at that and so what we call when we read with our kids in a traditional sense with a traditional print book what we have yeah. is dialogic reading so I read I ask a question the research is telling us that when we read digital books especially if there's lots of bells and whistles two things happen one the kids attention goes to processing all the bells and whistles and superfluous information and so their comprehension actually declines and the second thing that happens is that dialogic reading gets dismissed and the parent becomes the technical controller having said that there's also research that says that interactive book experiences particularly for reluctant readers can be a great way to entice them back mm. into reading. Um, so I think, again, it's that balanced approach, saying, you know, it's not one or the other, it's both. And the reality yeah. is our kids need to learn how to process online information. So learning yeah. to read book apps will be a future skill we need to acquire. Sort but of like a, di a digital pop-up book used to be. Yeah. Yes. Pop-up books. So my next question, and I know we're running out of time, is I know that I've been looking at a lot of stuff that you've been doing about um, digital distractions and time managements, management. Yeah. And my question is, how big is the issue of distraction with digital devices? Can't we just all multitask? How does it work if people expect instant answers to text and phone calls nowadays? I believe, Leonie, that our capacity to manage our attention so not to be seduced by digital distractions is going to be the 21st century super skill that we need um, we are growing up and living and working in an age where our attention is constantly hijacked by alerts notifications email pings and we have an ancient paleolithic brain that hasn't been wired to multitask. Despite what we think, um, numerous studies have confirmed that multitasking is in fact a myth. When we think we are multitasking, what we're actually doing is something called continuous partial attention or okay. context switching or rapid task switching. And yeah. a couple of fascinating things have been proven. When we multitask, we burn through glucose. So glucose is the energy supply in our brain. So we start to feel really tired and foggy. The next mm -hmm. thing that happens is our brain releases cortisol. And cortisol is a stress hormone. Cortisol actually stops neural pathways from forming. So a stressed brain cannot learn. So we're in this elevated stress state. But the third yeah. thing, and I think this is far the most fascinating for us as well as students, is that when we multitask information goes to a part of our brain called the striatum which is helpful for short-term procedural knowledge but where it really should be going especially if we want to do well on the geography or maths test on a friday is to a mm. part of the brain called the hippocampus and when we multitask information bypasses the hippocampus and gets placed into the striatum so multitasking is a myth and i think this is the skill um, and this is not about saying we'll ban technology and ban phones unrealistic advice they're going to be an integral part of our kids future what we have to do is to mm -hmm. teach them and hint hint us as adults how to yeah. tame technology how to build 
a fortress around our focus. And there are so many practical, simple skills that we can implement as adults and with kids so that they can certainly use technology, but they can use it in ways that isn't going to hijack their attention constantly. Yeah, so turn off the notifications or yes. put your phone out in the corridor. Absolutely. <laughs> and they're great you know, self-regulation strategies that your son has developed. Um, yeah. So other favourites of mine is, you know, out of sight, out of mind. So literally putting it somewhere you can't see it. But mm. also on the home screen of your phone, do not have your tech temptation. So if you've you got a young person who's obsessed with TikTok or Snapchat or whatever their platform is that's their weakness, taking that app off the home screen or even better, okay. taking it off the, the smartphone, creating a bit more friction. Um, yeah. For social media, if young people can't stop scrolling, turning it to grayscale when they're working mm. on top or a desktop computer maximizing the windows so they're not tempted to open up another browser or window every time they hit a stuck point or a challenging point in their work um, yeah. activating do not disturb mode you can now on all platforms set up autoresponders so that if you have got do not disturb set, uh, activated there are certain phone numbers that can still come through. So if mum or dad yeah. or, you know, your children, if you're an adult, there's a way to penetrate those boundaries and even send a direct message, an autoresponder, saying that you can't be contacted during this time. So there are yeah. things we can do, um, but it's about, again, us putting that fortress around our focus because if not, these technologies have been designed to captivate and distract us all. Yes, the tech companies have got something to answer for, haven't they? Because they're going to, they, they are hire, hiring um, all sorts of neurospecialists and psychologists and people like that to actually make their apps and their devices as, as addictive as possible. And I think at some point um, there's going to be some inquiries into that. I've been hearing about that for years, that they're going to start yeah. investigating the moral um, you know, compass around doing all of this by encouraging us to be absolutely tethered to our devices all the time. And a, bi a big one at the moment and a really simple strategy parents can put in place, possibly for their own use, but more so probably for their children and teenagers' use, is to disable the autoplay feature. So YouTube and most streaming yeah. services now make the autoplay feature the default setting. This means that when we use technology, all of us, we enter something called the state of insufficiency. The online world is a bottomless bowl. There's no stopping mm. cues. Mm. And so we find it hard to regulate. Our kids certainly do, especially when the up next section just rolls on. Um, so yeah. disabling that feature can have a huge impact. Which is why TikTok is so addictive, Christy because they don't have the ability to do that. And at least with Instagram, when you're scrolling along, it gets to a point where it says, you've all caught up now. And of course I scroll past that thinking, did I, did I really, did I really catch up, scroll past? But with TikTok, it's just, I my, myself can end up spending an hour just going through TikTok. There's just the most amazing content on there. And the algorithm is exceptional, um, but it's, as you said, it's just an ongoing scrolling thing. Christy, thank you so much for being a guest on Digital Families today and taking time out from your busy schedule. Where can people find out more about uh, you? And I'm going to put some links into um, the, the uh, blog post about some of those um, things that you've suggested 
particularly the apps for toddlers and so on. So thank you for having me, Leonie. Um, my digital home is at drchristie.com and there are a wealth of free resources that um, parents, educators and health professionals can gather there to help them navigate this digital terrain with their kids. Um, I'll share a link with you, Leonie, to a being checklist. So lots of practical ideas that we can all implement but so we can foster those healthy digital behaviours. Thank you very much, Christy. Um, thanks, everyone, for listening to the Digital Families podcast. If you like this podcast, please leave us a review or some feedback on YouTube or your favourite podcast app, whatever it is that you're listening to us on. I'd love to hear what you think. You might have an idea for a guest too. I'm always looking for exciting, interesting guests. Um, and share it with, with uh, a friend or family, someone you know that might be interested in listening. Um, and tune, again, tune in again next week to our next chat about all things digital and how it affects families.